Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Quite a day. We just made history. The the first female speaker of the house is once again the first female speaker of the house, Nancy Pelosi. She of the ass-kicking branch of the Pelosi family. She, I mean, when she walked out of the White House the other day with that red coat and the sunglasses, it was like, "Whoa! You know Donald Trump is worried." And, and then he comes out, Trump actually said this to a reporter. They were asked, well, you know, why don't you just back down? Why don't you just, you know, sign a budget and keep the government going and let those 800,000 people go back to work and then negotiate? You want your wall? The Democrats would like Medicare for all. Why don't you trade, swap? But Trump's response was, well, then I'd look foolish. He's willing to let 800 thousand people have their credit ratings damaged, have their lives turned upside down, have our national parks be turned into crap shows. It just things are falling apart. The IRS just shut down. I realize some people would celebrate that, but you know, it's like an indication of all these these branches of government that actually do things that we need. I mean, you know, if you want if you want your social security check, somebody needs to collect the damn taxes. And, and Trump is willing to just like, yeah. Uh, Wednesday night on Fox so-called news, Tucker Carlson went off on a rant about how men are in decline in America, which is leading to more drug abuse and higher incarceration rates. And what is driving that? Well, Carlson said that it was being caused by women who make more than men. Oh, my God. Or maybe even women who make the same amount as men. I, you know, he didn't say that, but I think it's implicit. <laughs> it's insane. He goes on and he says, women generally don't want to marry men who make less money than they do. He says, over big populations, this causes a drop in marriage, a spike in out-of-wedlock births, and all the familiar disasters that inevitably follow. More drug and alcohol abuse, higher incarceration rate, fewer families formed in the next generation. Oh, my God, pain, women. Oh, a decent wage is destroying America. Just ask Fox News. Well, this isn't the only example of misogyny out there. There's, there's many, obviously, and I think the 
I was going to say proclaimed candidacy of Elizabeth Warren uh, yesterday or the day before, although it's it's just, you know, she has announced an exploratory committee, but functionally it's the same thing. Exploratory committees almost always lead to candidacies. Is a case in point. Peter Beinart is writing about this. He's a professor of journalism at the City University of New York. I read his piece yesterday in The Atlantic, and it's uh, absolutely brilliant. Peter is uh, contributing editor of The Atlantic and uh, theatlantic.com, of course, the website. His Twitter handle is Peter Beinart, B-E-I-N-A-R-T. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Or Professor uh, Beinart. Just call me Peter. Yeah, okay. What is the real story behind the story that is being reported by the media so frequently that, well, Elizabeth Warren, yeah, she's got good progressive policies, but, you know, her favorability for 80s are not that high, and she's a divisive figure. What's going on here? Right. So my argument is it's true if you look at the polling that Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, disapproval ratings are pretty high. They're higher than Joe Biden's. They're higher than Bernie Sanders. And so what happens, I think, when a lot of journalists write these stories is they note that. Mm. And then they kind of say, well, you know, maybe it's because she has these fiercely, she has these progressive economic views, or maybe it's because of this Native American scandal thing. They basically look things that are particular to her to try to explain this. Whereas what they need to do is actually understand that this is true for virtually all women politicians, at least women politicians who support a feminist agenda, who who seek political power. It was true for Hillary Clinton. It's true for Nancy Pelosi. There's a, there's a lot of good academic research about the way that people, men in particular, and some women even, react very much more negatively to women's displays of ambition than men's displays of ambition. So my point is, if you're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren's high disapproval ratings, that's okay. You can talk about it. You can't leave out the gender component. The misogyny, essentially, uh, you know, whether whether it's intentional or even knowing or if it's just, you know, hey, it's baked into the cake of our culture. Um, tell us, tell, tell, tell everybody about that study that you cited in your article uh, where they created the fictitious biography of a, of a senator or a Senate candidate, as I recall, um, and then and then put a gender overlay on it. Yeah, uh, this is a study that really kind of knocked me for a loop when I first read it uh, a, a while ago. Um, so basically, uh, a couple of academics at Yale um, a few years ago gave people in this study two biographies of fictional state senators. They were exactly the same, except that one was male and one was female. And then they added into these biographies that this state senator was really ambitious and had a kind of will to power. Um, and what they found was that it, for the male state senator, the fictional male state senator, it made him, this, this fictional person, more popular. But for the woman, it not only made her less popular, but created a kind of a moral outrage. And I think that phrase, moral outrage, is really uh, helpful in understanding it, because I think what happens is that moral, my hypo- that moral outrage doesn't necessarily get expressed in people saying, I don't like ambitious women, just like a lot of the racial hostility to Barack Obama wasn't expressed as saying, I don't like black presidents. But it gets expressed in a whole series of other ways that we have to look at critically. So I think with Hillary Clinton, it had to do with this idea that somehow she was uniquely dishonest or uniquely corrupt or uniquely unlikable, none of which is true. 
her unlike her her favorability ratings were unfavorability ratings were like twenty points higher than John Kerry and Al Gore, who were also kind of stiff, right? Um, or again, with Nancy Pelosi, it comes off well. She's from San Francisco, or as you say, people just say, "So we don't really like her style or her mannerisms." And I think that if we if we look at what academic research has told us about the way people respond to women and ambition, we can try to unpack what that means. Yeah, in in two thousand eight. Uh, I had a, uh, on, on this program, uh, the, uh, one of the top guys in the California Democratic Party, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, it's been a while, I don't remember his name, uh, he was African American, and he came on our, and this was during the, you know, the early primary when it was uh, uh, Barack Obama versus Hillary Clinton in 2008. And, and he came on the program and he said, uh, we really need to be supporting Hillary Clinton because there's no way America is going to elect a black man whose middle name is Hussein. He said, it's just, you know, it's just a done deal. It's not going to happen. And as much as as much as he liked Barack Obama and, you know, as much as he liked his policies, he said, you know, it just ain't going to happen. He says, I'm a black man. I know how this works. And right. and uh, so that was, you know, sort of conventional wisdom for actually for a couple of months during that primary. And yeah. and um, it, in retrospect, it seems like he was making his bet wrong because misogyny is is transracial it's non-racial i mean misogyny is baked into the cake for basically all right. men regardless of their race and probably unconsciously at a lot of different levels and 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 also a lot of women i mean you know is is that a reasonable conclusion yeah. to draw from from the history of the last 10 years or so yeah i mean the studies show that look men are not the only group that have kind of traditionalist gender views, right? I mean, many more men have those views than women, but some percentage of women have those views too. So the degree that a, the idea of a female president or a female speaker of the House, basically someone, it's interesting if you look at the advertisements that Republicans run against Nancy Pelosi, often what the theme of the advertisements is that your local Democratic candidate or congressman who's a man is going to be under the control bossed around, told what to do, under the foot of Nancy Pelosi. Right? And, right. and what this plays into is this anxiety about women being control, men being controlled by women, women being on top, which is exactly what Tucker Carlson is playing into, right? Yeah. Yeah. That seems unnatural, threatening, even to some women, although to many more men. I think that this is not to say that a woman couldn't be elected president. I mean, I think a woman still could be elected president, but the, but the hurdles are very great. And we can't begin to actually, I think, overcome those hurdles unless we're really explicit about what's going on. And it's, what's been really frustrating to me over the last few days is to see all of these people who I remember, you know, with Hillary Clinton, it was like, no, 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 no. it's just Hillary Clinton I don't like. It's just, it's just her, you know. Now, lo and behold, so many of these people also find Elizabeth Warren off-putting. Right. You know, what a coincidence. Yeah, and the solution to this is, broadly speaking, is for us to all start calling it out. You know, as a, we call out racism in our society, we call out homophobia in our society, but misogyny is only rarely called out. You know, there was a discussion about this during the during the Hillary candidacy, but this is a variable that is almost invisible, at least in the media, and yet has a huge impact on elections. And given that, the fact that Hillary Clinton won three million more votes than Donald Trump. And, you know, were it not for 80,000 voters in three states, would be president right now. I think it's a huge statement of, A, you could argue the quality of her candidacy or maybe the, the lack of quality of Trump's. But, B, the unreported role of misogyny in that election, too, in 2016. Yeah, I agree. We should have 
done it much more in 2016. We really need to grapple, I think, and reporters, journalists need to talk much more explicitly about, as you say, the way these things are baked in. The whole notion we have of what a politi- of what charisma looks like in a politician. You know, you think about, like, the John F. Kennedy figure, right? And I think that's right. part of what works so well for better or war. And even to some degree, even despite the racial challenges that work for Barack Obama, are very much connected to gender, right? Certain kind of, even sex appeal, a certain kind of, like, notion of what a man, you know, what a, what a leader is. These things are all really, really, again, it's similar with our athletes, right? Think about how baked in our notions of gender are to what makes a great athlete, right? Mm-hmm. The way we think about a great athlete. And so we are only going to, um, we, I think we need to start, ha- when we talk about Elizabeth Warren and the particular challenges that t- she faces and the way people talk about it, we have to situate it in that longer, larger conversation and become more self-conscious and not just allow people to get away with saying, well, she's too aggressive or she's shrill or she's overbearing or I don't like you know, I don't like her mannerisms. We have to really try to ask what, what pe- what's really going on with those kind of statements. Right. Those kind of statements are basically code for don't want, don't like women in charge. We're talking to Peter Beiner, professor of journalism at the City of University of New York, about this, uh, this issue. Um, to what extent do you think that actually having a woman as president will blow up some of those stereotypes and, and will advance the cause of, of diminishing misogyny and, and increasing equality? So it's interesting. I actually wrote another piece which dealt with, I think, unfortunately, it's actually really a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it would be obviously tremendously valuable. And yet, if you look at the Barack Obama example, what we also saw is that while Barack Obama's election was an incredible step forward for the United States, it also produced a, a really, really bad, virulent backlash, right? right, as we've seen with Donald Trump. And I think that the harsh reality that we would have, we probably have to face is that if we were lucky enough to have a female president, it would also produce a very, very harsh backlash. Because look, look how scared Tucker Carlson is now. Look how much he's feeding in this notion. We know from polling that most Trump supporters think that men face more discrimination in America than women, right? And that's what Tucker Carlson is pushing. A woman president would only fuel those fears. Still, I think that we need to be pushing for it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But but, but it will be an ongoing struggle. Yeah, amen. Peter Beiner. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, my pleasure. And for writing this. It's really, really well done. It's in the Atlantic. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls. What do you think about misogyny and what, how, how do we address this most successfully? So when we look at this situation, when we look at this fundamental reality, getting back to the old quote from my friend, the Harvard psychiatry professor, that testosterone is the most dangerous drug in the world, Misogyny is technically and literally the hatred of women. And I think that that's kind of the extreme end. Just like, you know, overt racism is the extreme end of hate based on race. But in the middle area, which is the largest area, there's simply gender bias, just like there's racial bias. There's a a remarkable study that was published. These researchers put together an experiment testing for empathy in rats. And they had white rats and black rats, lab rats. But some were pure white, some were pure black. They took a white rat and put him near a body of water, as I recall, you know, in in a lab. And 
put another white rat in the water so that he was in distress. He needed some help. And the white rat, who was okay, would help out his buddy, the other white rat. But when they put a black rat in the water, drowning, the white rat didn't help. So then they flipped it around and did the same thing with the black rat, you know, and basically what they found was that the black and white rats wouldn't save the other kind of rat, period. Now, these were white rats and black rats that had been raised with their own kind, essentially. Then they bred some white rats and black rats and, and at birth threw them all together in the same litter. So they literally grew up with each other, the white rats and black rats. And then they ran the experiment again. And now all that racial bias, as it were, all that color bias, I don't, you know, if, I'm not sure you can call it a race of rats, vanished. And the black rats were saving black rats and they were saving white rats and the white rats were saving, you know, white rats and black rats. And everybody was saving everybody and everybody just realized we're all just rats here. This makes, you know, at the level of race, it makes a strong case for things like integration in the United States and explains how people who grew up in a segregated culture can carry racial bias to the point of it becoming racial animus. But I think that this lesson also teaches us about the, you know, the relative roles of men and women. The more as a society we segregate women, and we did this for years and years and years. I mean, I, you know, I remember the 1970s running my first business and putting in, you know, looking at the help wanted ads in the paper. And there were two sections, help wanted men, help wanted women. If you wanted a secretary, you put it in the help wanted women. If you wanted a factory worker, you put it in help wanted men. I mean, there were these clear segregations of roles. Legally, I mean, just routinely, part of our culture. And I suspect that as we go forward and we see more and more women in roles of leadership, yeah, there will be backlash, but I think it's gonna start eroding that, that misogyny or that, that gender bias that's built into our culture. Which raises the question, I mean, you know, there's a whole generation of young people in business now, you know, b b both employers and employees, who came up when the newspapers weren't segregating jobs by gender. Are they less gender biased? Are millennials less gender biased than boomers, for example? I'm inclined to believe that that's the case, just like we know that they're less racially biased. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Zone.com, Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM, Riduzone.com. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So thus, I think you could build a really strong case that one of the most important things we can do to defeat misogyny is to elect a woman as president. Steve in Goldendale, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? 
I definitely think it's time for a woman president. <laughs> yeah. It's past time. Anyhow, I wanted to say that today is the day of Inanna. Inanna being Venus. Um, the oldest writing writings in uh, Western civilization are the stories of Inanna. Hmm. A, uh, so, a female goddess, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And so that's that's my comment. Yeah. Okay. And we've historically, you know, there's the the moon has been referred to as grandmother moon, the mother earth. I mean, you know, we we have these nurturing frames that we use to describe these things, but I think they come from cultures that existed long before ours. Steve, thanks for the call. Great, great point. Lonnie in Cairo, Illinois. Hey, Lonnie, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, this is kind of off the wall. <laughs> Hope not too much. But uh, in my way of thinking, one of the main causes of uh, of uh, misogyny and racism, by the way, is uh, something I call primary eros, but you might think of it in terms of essential sensuality. Think of Mother Earth. But, you know, a lot of the reaction to, you know, Anglo-Saxon conditioning all those centuries is that when you look at the religious doctrine, it's basically asexual. You know, it's like they got this problem with sexuality. We've been... But I think one of the big problems, and this originated with my thinking of racism, but I think that it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, uh, for a, a conditioned white mind to, it's something that they, they don't understand that they're not, that they're, that they're denying, but they're denying their sexuality, and they deny that in the, in the, in the, uh, the black culture, and the same reason why they, uh, they deny the, uh, American Indian. It's the same thing. It's this, uh, it's this basic uh, uh, essential sensuality that comes from, you know, comes from, uh, you know, from like but, Mother but, Earth. Yeah, but there's a huge piece of gender in, in religion, Lonnie. I mean, you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and, you know, it's, it's God and, and Adam, you know, it's not God and Eve. It's, it's uh, the gods of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all have penises. It's, it's really interesting. There's a book called the Alphabet versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein, who was a neurosurgeon. And what Schlein found doing research in Europe on, on this was that up until the development of the printing press, the principal deity who was worshipped by Christians in Europe from basically the 10th century to the, to the 16th century was Mary. There was Mary worship all over. There were churches dedicated to Mary. There were grottos dedicated to Mary. I mean, everybody worshiped Mary. Jesus was very, very small in the scene. And then after the printing press, and when literacy was legalized, up until that point, it was illegal to be literate unless you were a priest. When lit literacy got legalized in the mid-1500s, within two generations, thousands of women had been burned at the stake as witches. There was this huge, uh, you know, basically takeover of, by the men of society, of religion uh, and, and religious society. And he thinks that it's because when people grow up learning to read using an abstract alphabet, that that strengthens or grows the, the left hemisphere of the brain, which controls the right side of our body, which is the, the masculine dominant hemisphere. And it makes us hardwired to want hierarchy and patriarchy. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a mind-blowing concept. And it's one of the reasons why Rudolf Steiner said kids should not learn to read before they're seven years old. Um, but anyway, uh, it's, it, there's, there's all kinds of stuff here. Lonnie, thanks a lot for the call. Sharice in Polesboro, Washington. Hey, Sharice, what's up? 
Hi. Um, can I make one tiny point about money? And then my big point was about misogyny. Sure. Um, I've done some setting of uh, Native American potlatch tribes. And when it started out, it was about the richest person in the community having these big dinners, including everyone. And then they would get more elaborate, more elaborate as they got more money. And then they would start giving gifts with their things, you know, metals, baskets, stuff like that. And eventually, after trading fur, the tribes got so rich that the people who were rich in the community would make a big pile of baskets and tools and riches and things like that and light them on fire to show how wealthy they were, that they didn't even need these things, that they could just discard them. Anyway, it's just a a point hmm. about isn't that isn't wealth. the basis of potlatch society and also uh, some of the other what are sometimes referred to as hospitality cultures isn't the basis of that culture that the the principal way you you gain social esteem you gain social status is by giving things away yeah it was and then it just got to the point when they started trading first that they had so much money, it showed prestige and wealth that you could just burn these things. And yeah. it didn't, I mean, it was crazy, but it was... So anyway, on to the, the female thing. I think it's, a, it's just a cultural thing with the United States and a lot of other countries as well. But when you look at Angela Merkel and England and the females that they've had in charge, uh, Theresa May. Thatcher, things yeah. like that. Yeah. South America has several countries with female leaders. And I had to study a non-Western minority study anthropologies in college. And I remember the matriarchal societies in South America, where eventually the grandmother was the head of the family. But of course, the wives were nothing and the men were supposed to cheat on them and all that. And you didn't acclaim status until you were a grandmother. But there are so many other countries that have women in charge. Isn't this just an American thing? Catherine the Green in Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Russia. And the nice thing about when she was a leader, she provided um, health care for her people because she knew that she would have a stronger tax base and a stronger country if her people were healthy. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great reasons to have a female in the presidency is I think the compassion factor. I, you know, I wonder that that's a fascinating question, Cherise. Is misogyny or gender bias or whatever is a kind of a mid range word? Is it more severe in the United States? And I would add Australia to that mix than the rest of the world and if so why yeah right i think it is i you know it seems that way and i I, might have come go ahead is it because of royalty i don't know i mean it it could be because of our cowboy culture i mean i just wrote this book on gun culture and how you know our gun culture came out of uh, slavery essentially and the genocide of native americans and there's this whole macho piece associated with the founding of this republic on the murder of 50 to 100 million Native Americans and the enslavement of millions and millions of Africans. Those are not female values generally. Those are what are perceived to be very male values, hierarchy, domination, control. And they're very much ascendant here. And I would say in Australia as well. Again, and a culture that was largely based on wiping out the local indigenous people. Uh, the indigenous people of Europe are thousands of years in distant memory. Nobody even is sure who they were. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. Sharice, thank you for some very, very thoughtful comments. It was great. Bob in San Jose, listening on uh, AM 910. Hey, Bob, what's up? Uh, well, I was going to say, I think we've got another little place where the misogyny is breaking down a bit. And in the uh, 1950s, early 60s, my sister was the first woman to take mechanical drawing and drafting in high school. Hmm. And I was the first to take shorthand. 
Yeah, I took uh, typing when I was in seventh grade, and yeah. my father forced me to do it. He said, this will be one of your most useful skills. You are going to do this. And it was me and 26 women, girls, you know, 13-year-olds yeah. in the class. And I was horribly embarrassed. But to this day, probably the one thing that I learned in school that has been the greatest blessing to me is I know how to type really fast. Well, that I was in that same category, too, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. And, so. and I, because I learned typing because I was told, you're going to be doing term papers. Yeah. So, so the net net of what you're saying, Bob, is as, as we break down these stereotypes, as we break down these roles, their, their hold on us becomes diminished. Is that I essentially so. what you're saying? Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. The, the big question in my mind is why is it so uniquely difficult in the United States? I mean, Maggie Thatcher, Theresa May in the UK, Angela Merkel in Germany. Well, I, again, I think it's breaking down. Where I live, San Jose, we've had Zoe Lofgren as a, as a yeah. in the yeah. legislature, and yeah. we've had a number of other females uh, that have been in the in the state and in the, the county level and so on for, for years. Yeah. Well, you wonder if, if England was prepared for Maggie Thatcher by Queen Elizabeth, you know, by Queen Victoria. I mean, they actually had female heads of state, and we haven't. I think they're right, though, in that regard. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Bob. Joshua in Vashon, Washington. Hey, Joshua, what's up? Hey, Tom. It occurs to me, at least in America, I, I've traveled quite a bit around the world, but in America in particular, one of the biggest, I guess, things that leads to misogyny from what I can see is the religions, mm. at least the Christian portion of religions. The man is typically the household, and as far as I understand biblically, the man ultimately does have the deciding vote, at least as far as how it's been interpreted by many people. Yeah, I think that's true of the conservative branches of every yeah. religion, whether you're looking at very orthodox Jews, whether you're looking at highly observant Muslims, or whether you're looking at fundamentalist Christians, that, you know, misogyny is kind of baked into the cake. Yeah, and and yeah, they all point sure. back to Adam and Eve, you know, that, that Eve tempted Adam, and that's where original sin came from, and, you know, we're all in need of salvation because we were born out of a woman's womb. Yeah, on that note before I go, you've said it before, but Ishmael is a phenomenal story about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you really want to know the history of the human race, read Dan Quinn's book, Ishmael. Joshua, thank you may, for the may call. May I say one quick thing, because I sure. never know when I'll get back to you again? Yeah, go okay, for it. thank you, sir. It occurred to me a while ago, having a discussion with someone about uh, white privilege, etc., that at least here in America, there's one particular group of people who has never had to ask for a right, yet has assigned rights to everyone else, and that is the white male. Yeah. Since European colonization. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you could argue that the reason why is because they had the guns. They controlled mm -hmm. the technology. But I think it's, it's actually more complex than that. But it's a good one. Thank you, Joshua. Uh, let's try Luis in Portland, Oregon. Or is it Lewis? Lewis. Lewis. Hey, Lewis, what's up? First conversation. I noticed that when we're talking about misogynism, I have been part of the uh, Cascade Festival for African Film out here in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the longest running African festivals here. And they did films of misogyny from various cultures and various tribes and countries in Africa. And one of them that was quite caught my attention was a generation of Nigerian men and women who grew up in which the men felt that women could do anything men could do, no matter what it was. But there was this idea of capital C culture and capital A art that women could never approach because they were female, hmm. not male. And, yeah, an example of misogynism. 
in Australia, there's a young man I just saw on BBC, Hard Talk, who is a boomer, like uh, me and you, and who's examining that idea of misogyny in Australia because he was influenced a lot by Aboriginal culture, in which several Aboriginals are also examining their own form of unique misogyny amongst the religious aspects mm-hmm. in their tribes. Also examining the idea of the good bloke. And he just grew up with several people who appreciate dad who were peaceful. So yeah. you're right, it is complex depending on where it comes from, and some of the roots are a bit spread around. Yeah, yeah, it definitely seems so. Lewis, thanks for the call. You know, this is, I, you know, this is turning into a fascinating conversation. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep: make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to X chair Tom. That's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. John Harmon here with you. Amanda in Ithaca, New York. Hey, Amanda, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, I listened to a podcast a few years ago from Revisionist History, and I, I looked it up while I was waiting. The name of the episode is The Lady Vanishes. And mm-hmm. it's about how when countries elect a female leader, it brings out more misogyny that had become like under the radar. It becomes more overt. And it's like the same phenomenon that we saw with Barack Obama as president, where we saw an absurgence of racism and hate groups. Right. Which raises the question, though, Amanda, if that happens, and I think you're absolutely right. Peter Beinert was saying, you know, this is what you can expect. If that happens, is that the last gasp of a dying movement or is that the resurgence of something? It seems to me that all of the racism. Well, yeah, I think once you have that resurgence of those uh, misogyny and racism things, then, then that also elicits a higher response from people who fight those things. Yeah, that's my thought. And therefore, I would welcome it, actually, because it's not like it wasn't there before. It's just now visible. Uh, it's not like, you know, uh, the, the white racists, you know, the Charlottesville people just all of a sudden decided to become racists. They were always racist. They just suddenly decided that they could talk about it out loud and in public. And now, you know, a lot of them have lost their jobs and many of them are viewed as social outcasts. And the consequence of that is that other young men coming up are looking at them going, well, that's not a good role model. So yeah. it seems like, you know, step by step. Amanda, thank you for the call. Janet in uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan. Hey, Janet, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for your show. Thank you. Um, so I think this is a lot based on sex, actually. I think that men believe that if women get too powerful, then they'll restrict sexual behavior. Um, I don't think men are ready to give over that power to a woman, at least not in America. Countries like Brazil and Costa Rica that had female leaders, and look what happened to them. So I do think misogyny increases if a woman is president. 
I think maybe if we started out with a woman as vice president, it might be a little better. Uh, I just feel like the country's not ready. The men in this country are not ready. My dad died almost three years ago, and it was during the um, Trump debacle. Yeah, yeah. Um, primary campaign. And Yes, the campaign. And he looked at me and he said, there's no way Hillary Clinton is going to get elected. He said the men in this country are never going to be ready for a woman to be president of this country. But she got three million more votes than Trump did. I mean, there, there's, she did. There, there was a she did. there was broad support for her. And I, I really think this yeah, election I is listen, an I anomaly. I listened to a lot of the women and the way they talked about her. And I just said, wow, I just don't think we're there yet. I think there was more backlash to Hillary from people who viewed her as part of the new ruling elite, essentially. You know, the Clinton Global Initiative. You know, they go to all the big parties. They hang out with the billionaires. They become multimillionaires themselves. They support neoliberal policies that are more elite-centric rather than grassroots centric you know it's not the bill clinton who was running for governor of arkansas my sense during the campaign was that that was the thing that upset people more than the fact that she was a woman although who's going to say yeah i don't like her because she's a woman you know men are not going to come out and say that but uh interesting no. interesting points all janet i uh, thank you for the call So talking about misogyny, we started out talking with Peter Beiner, the journalism professor at SUNY, and he was pointing out the role that misogyny plays in the Elizabeth Warren candidacy. If you look at her favorability ratings among women, they're very high. If you look at them among men, they're very low. And why? Because she's a woman. And he was talking about how women are perceived in this negative way and essentially trashed for, for, for being women who are seeking power. And... You know, even even just saying that is it's, it's it kind of sound in our culture. That sounds like it should be a negative, and and instead we should be celebrating this. I mean, we just had the first speaker, the first female speaker of the house in history, just got replaced in her position as speaker of the house. That's a really good thing, I would think. Katie in Sundance, Wyoming. Hey, Katie, your thoughts on this? Well, I wanted to talk to you about, um, in 1995, I went to work in a non-traditional um, job, working at a sewer plant. Mm -hmm. Now, when I first got there, these guys had absolutely no idea what to do with me, okay? Mm -hmm. And they discovered I would work, and, you know, I showed them that I could spit and swear just like they did, and we had a very good reworking relationship, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, they did try to protect me. Uh, one of the things that my boss thought I could do was work with a jackhammer. And I had to fight to get my turn to work on with the jackhammer. Mm -hmm. And the guys were okay with that, as long as we weren't in public. Because if I was working with the jackhammer in public, then they would start getting mean looks because here's these six-foot guys standing around while a five-foot-free woman is working with the jackhammer. Huh. So we we have to change those attitudes as well. Yeah, it's the cultural okay. perceptions. The Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then my very next job was working for a woman in a general contracting company. Mm -hmm. Now, I had proved myself that I could work, and I was pretty reasonable, and I could think. But when I went to work for another woman... It seemed that if you weren't a male, you didn't have good ideas. Hmm. 
So you were working for a woman who had who had uh, internalized the whole misogynistic uh, or or sexist, I guess would probably a better word, um, worldview. Yes, yes. And um, one of the things that I distinctly remember is, you know, we worked for, uh, well, it was uh, Alcoa, which used to be Reynolds Aluminum, okay? And I came up with a drug policy, you know, and thinking maybe it could help with, you know, um, our, uh, 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 what am I trying to say, the... uh, uh, when you get hurt on the job sure. and you have to pay. Yeah, workman's comp. So, right. And I thought that could help. Well, she didn't think we needed it. And like two months later, our superintendent came in with, oh my God, we have to have the drug policy. Huh. You know? Amazing. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know? So these are things not only with people, you know, men, we have to train our women that we can do anything we our mind to. Yeah, no, I got it. Katie, thanks a lot for the call and uh, for sharing your story. It's a fascinating one. Eric, watching Free Speech TV in Middletown, New York. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Uh, happy Thursday to you. Listen, I've got two aspects to uh, fighting misogyny, uh, at least here in our American culture. Um, one of them you may agree with, uh, the other you probably won't. But uh, the first part would be the, the Me Too and other folks and organizations that are taking um, the amorous and libidinous uh, kinds of harassment and uh, pointing that out and, and having success with, uh, with revealing it. You're talking um, about people who are, you, who are pushing back against basically sexualized harassment. Yes. Yeah. Harassment that is sexual in nature. And I would argue that there is harassment that is patriarchally power broking in nature that may have no actual sexual component from that man towards that woman. Mm-hmm. And it is just as damaging. Um, and that's why this is an important discussion that uh, needs to be had in an ongoing and regular way. And the second part, which is the one you probably won't agree with so much, I as an American, as a constitutional American with with no church affiliation of any kind, would love to see uh, religious behavior, conduct, and speech put on a level, at least under the law, uh, that is comparable to sexual behavior in that um, you have sex, I have sex, we all have sex, we all know each other does it, but we don't see each other doing it. It's a private thing. And I would think that the breaking down the patriarchal forces in the society that so much come from the main Christian faiths that, that dominate in America, if those people would be required to keep that to themselves when they're out in the public or in the workplace or at the soccer game or whatever it is, uh, they need to keep that to themselves, and if they step outside of that boundary, then those people being basically proselytized to in one way or another uh, would have the option to, to have them charged in a minor way, not unlike other forms of harassment and threat speech and, you know, minor verbal stuff that we recognize as some form of criminal offense. Right. I'd love to see all religion just put into the religious buildings. I, I'm, I don't begrudge anyone. No, I, I, I get where you're going here, Eric, and, and I, I don't know if you realize it or not, but there is one person, uh, one historic figure, who really dramatically, radically agrees with your position. Not not with regard to legislation, but but certainly with religion being, you know. Have you uh, Russell? No, Jesus. 
in the in the Sermon oh, on really? the Mount, in Matthew <laughs> seven or eight, it, you know, Jesus says, "When you pray, don't stand in the streets and babble many words like the hypocrites do, because they just want to be noticed." He said, "Instead, go in your closet, close the door, and pray to your God in secret, and He will reward you openly." Um, you know, it, it, I, it's just like I. This is the, the the thing that just makes me crazy about you know people praying in public. I I I don't, and I've always felt uncomfortable about public prayer, even in church, because it's exactly what Jesus preached against. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm there you go. It's, it becomes about membership. And if that faith, that sect uh, holds power in that community, uh, employment, real estate, things of that nature, then that's going to undoubtedly uh, be the disadvantage of, of those who aren't a member of the club. Yeah, there you go. Eric, thanks a lot for the call. A fascinating uh, kind of tangent, but a fascinating one. Patty in Los Alamitos. Hey, Patty, what's up? Hi. I love your show. You stimulate such great thought. And I wanted to offer a point about women leaders elected to the presidency in the United States. In Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened?, she makes an important point about women leaders in uh, most Western countries like India, Australia, Great Britain, Canada, all um, have parliamentary forms of government. And she explains that women in Western culture are mainly responsible for emotional work, like scheduling family celebrations and birthdays and Christmases and soccer practice and that sort of thing. And women are not given credit for that emotional work unless people experience it directly. Mm. And so she thinks that because we have the representative democracy, all of the emotional work that she did um, as a senator, as secretary of state, and taking care of her staff and walking a box of Kleenex over to them in a meeting if they needed it or getting coffee for them when she got coffee for herself or um, celebrating their birthdays uh, of a staff member. Mm -hmm. Um, The people people in the United States who are, you know, far flung don't experience um, her emotional work. And in a parliamentary system, people the people where the um, leader is um, elected by the other members, um, they do experience the woman's um, emotional work. And so they, um, that's why um, in parliamentary systems, women have been elected as the head of the government. Right. And I think that you could recharacterize that, what you're describing as emotional work, as supportive work, basically. And I think your point about you know, parliamentary systems is a good one, um, because, the, you know, the, the, uh, probably a lot of Americans don't realize that the you know, prime minister of the United Kingdom or of Canada or I believe India as well, is not actually elected by the people. They're appointed by whatever coalition they can pull together and basically by their party. And so it's, it, it comes out of the proverbial smoke-filled rooms kind of thing. Yes, and, yes. And, 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 I, and I think that, that she, she thinks that that may be one of the reasons the United States has not had a woman. Right. And, and she, she even talked about Southern Senator, who just 
said something terrible about her when she was elected and as a senator and um, she didn't name him but then after Katrina he called her and thanked her and apologized and told her that she had done more for Louisiana and Alabama than any other member of Congress except um, the representatives of Louisiana and Alabama. That was one of the most interesting reasons that the election went the way it went. Well, actually, I mean, let's keep in mind, the way the election went was that Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. Donald Trump was elected by the Electoral College, not by the American people. Your point is well taken, Patty, and I was talking about the white rat, black rat study, but I think that it's an important one to point out here, that what they found when they, they had white rats that had been raised with white rats, and when they threw a, a white rat into a situation that put him in distress, as I recall, he was in water and he needed to be rescued, the white rats would jump in and help him. But when they threw a black rat into that situation, the white rats didn't, and vice versa. When it was black rats who were in good shape, but the white rat was in distress, the black rats didn't help out the white rat. But then they tried raising black rats and white rats from from you know puphood or whatever. Yeah, I think they're called pups, the baby rats, uh, together. And what then happened was that the rats stopped paying attention to which color the other rats were when deciding whether to save them or not, and all rats saved all rats. And so there's, there, you know, the lesson for that, I think, you know, rats are mammals. I mean, you know, this is, this is apparently something that's like deep, deep, deep inside us. The lesson from that is that if we, if we grow up together with people of different races, but also different genders, um, you know, we, you have a different outcome. And, and seeing women in power, growing up seeing women in power, seeing, seeing mom in the workplace, seeing women doing things that are beyond the supportive kinds of jobs the teaching kind of jobs, things like that, secretaries, and seeing them as CEOs and as presidents and as senators is like a really important stuff. And that's why it's so, it's so good that there's such uh, gender diversity as well as racial diversity in the Democratic House of Representatives now and in the, in the Democrat, among the Democrats in the Senate. Patty, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. Your, your point is really well made. Cynthia in Fairview, Oregon. Hey, Cynthia, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I uh, also listened to that uh, Revisionist History podcast that a previous caller uh, talked about. It's a Malcolm Gladwell Mm -hmm. podcast. And I think his point of the podcast was that we make these progressive uh, forward motion uh, changes. I mean, obviously, our society is progressing, but... Oftentimes, especially with women and uh, people of color, there is a severe backlash, um, almost a one step forward, two steps backward kind of event. Yeah. Um, I think it's the uh, other way around, uh, though, Cynthia. I think it's two yeah. steps forward, one step back. Because as the oh, racists, maybe. you know, when, when President Obama became president, Barack Obama became president, the racists just like came out of their holes or whatever. And suddenly we were seeing them right in front of us. And then the backlash to them began on a much more local basis. And if you look at all the ads that the Republicans ran in the 2016 election, in so many districts, and we, you know, we've highlighted some of those ads here on this program, in so many of these districts, the male Republicans, particularly when they were running against a 
female Democrat, would run ads characterizing Nancy Pelosi as like the wicked witch, witch of the West. And I, and I use that racist stereotype intentionally. And, and uh, you know, right down to the point of, you know, making it seem like she's cackling and stuff. And, and I, I, I don't think it worked. I think, you know, in some, some very, very, you know, red areas, it, it did work. It did succeed. But I think it actually backfired on many of them. And it might be one of the reasons why there's so many women who have been elected. People watch those ads and go, really? This is how Republicans think? I think I'll vote for the Democrat. What do you think, Cynthia? Yeah, yeah I think that a point about the parliamentary system is important because our election system is different. We've gone through the experience of Hillary Clinton running for president and rightly should have been. Um, and maybe now we feel like we can uh, make more progress. But um, when I listened to that podcast, my distinct come away was that uh, we step back when we make forward progress. Yeah, Always. well, there's no doubt about that. There's always backlash. Cynthia, thank you for the call. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I'm going to have to check out Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. If your New Year's resolutions include taking better care of yourself and being smarter with your finances, Harry's has you covered. Plus, you'll get a great shave in the bargain. Esquire magazine was so impressed, they awarded Harry's their 2018 Grooming Award. Harry's smooth, comfortable glide and close shave will have you hooked in no time. I won't shave with anything but Harry's. Harry's wants to help you start the new year off right. New customers get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and travel cover for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just use Tom, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Harry's replacement cartridges are just $2 each, and if you don't love your shave, you'll get a full refund from Harry's. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners to this program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code Tom, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. When you use the code Tom at Harry's, join the millions who've already switched and get on over to Harry's.com today and use the code Tom, T-H-O-M, at checkout to claim your offer. Checking in with Talk Media News here, finding out what's going on in the world today. Bob Nay on the line with us. Uh, this report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Bob is the author of Sideswiped and former congressman from Ohio. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. So what's going on in the world today? Well, as we speak, the count and the roll call is being held of the leaders, of course, on the Democratic side. History is made again for the second time with Nancy Pelosi, and they're calling the roll. It doesn't seem to be anything of a problem for her. This, you know, I had to get off, of course, because I was coming on your show. And McCarthy on the Republican side from California seems to be the sure bet as, yeah. the, uh, as the minority leader. And then, uh, of course, there's going to be a rules package after everybody is sworn in that'll be brought up. Now, there's some controversy to that. And if 18 on the Democratic side do not go for the rules package, then uh, they would take out the provision called PAYGO. And PAYGO uh, versus, now, the other side of the argument, PAYGO, of course, is when it's been around for a while and it's been promoted, but PAYGO would be that if you uh, have new funding, you have to find either the funding source for it uh, in a sense of a cut or in the sense of increasing revenue. Right. My understanding is we had, we had a long conversation on the air with Congressman Pocan, who is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and he and Pramila Jayapal are tweeting about it right now. The Intercept published an article on the 2nd that suggested that PAYGO in the House rules meant that conservative Democrats could force progressives to 
come up with funding, you know, that you can't do like like Trump did with his tax cut. But what Congressman Pocan said was that that's the law. There's a PAYGO law. And the law can be waived, but it can only be waived if the ability to waive it is in your rules. And so if those 18 people don't vote for that rule package, if the rule package doesn't pass, and so the PAYGO rule doesn't pass, then the House loses its ability to waive PAYGO, as they did for Trump's tax cut, for example. They lose that ability, which means that the Senate will enforce PAYGO, and, and, and then the progressives are really screwed. So it's, it's almost like you know the, the Republicans blew up the Democratic Party, or somebody, whoever wrote this piece for, for The Intercept and got it so terribly wrong, you know, have just blown up the progressives. It's going to be real interesting to see how they fix this. Well, that's correct, Tom, because let me go to the alternative to PAYGO under the Trump administration, which is CUTGO, okay? Because if you don't have this system of PAYGO, which you're correct, could then be waived in certain cases, and then they can justify when to waive it or not, frankly. And besides, let's look at the whole deficit anyway. I mean, where's it all at? It's so out of balance anyway. This won't make a difference, period. You know, if you've got the PAYGO and you enforce it every single time, it is small in the whole broad spectrum. Now, on the progressive side, they have been saying a lot that, well, you know, Medicare for all can't come about, et cetera. But you're, you're correct, and, and the congressman's correct. If you've got it into the rules, then you can deal with it, and you can uh, undo it when you, you know, temporarily set it aside when you want to. You can waive it, yeah. If but if it's not in the rules, you're screwed. You are going to be under the mercy, uh, correct? Of the law, uh, yeah. Of, yeah. you know, of the law. Now, so I, I would think that enough people would be convinced of it. Besides, there's only a few on the Democratic side that really, really wanted this uh, in a sense that they were in tight marginal districts and somehow they thought this, you know, would benefit them. And I think some of those statements by those individuals probably shook some of the progressives and got them a little bit more off track than they should have been, frankly. Yeah, this I think so. a lot of hype. I think so. There's, there's, and, and the hype seems to be in the progressive media and Correct. starting at the intercept and with a, apparently a misunderstanding of exactly how this all works. What else is going on in the world, Bob? Well, and I did want to mention the Gephardt rule, though, too. Uh, and okay. it's, it's the old Gephardt rule, and, you know, they keep voting for the uh, raising the cap on the, the spending, but they'll, they'll do it with a twist where they'll be able to actually kind of just say, okay, it's moving on, it goes over to the Senate. So they don't have to have the same twin identical resolution the Senate would on raising the cap. Right. This, uh, is, this is the deficit ceiling. And, right. And, and, and this is a very it, good one. Right. If you're going to pass legislation that raises the deficit if you're going to pass legislation that raises the deficit, then the the uh, without the Gephardt rule, you have to do pay-go or cut-go. But with the Gephardt rule, you can simply say, okay, we're going to raise the deficit ceiling at the same time that we pass this legislation. We can just incorporate right. it into the legislation. Right. Got it. And then, of course, the House moves on to the, the big issue of the wall, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, President Trump has no exit plan, no ability to get out of this thing. I'm sure that Speaker Pelosi doesn't want dominated for the entire month on the issue. However, uh, she's still on the more bargaining side to this. At their second meeting, nothing came about. So, you know, the next step's in the hands of the president. Mitch McConnell, of course, is punting the entire thing, and he says no matter what the House sends over, he'll see what the president wants to do. So, I mean, at some point in time, you know, this, this has to budge. Well, three weeks ago, Trump was perfectly willing to sign the, legis- the Republican legislation that Nancy Pelosi is going to bring to the floor of the House today. I mean, three weeks ago, he was perfectly ready to sign it. And well, then, then, then Laura Ingram went after started. him. 
pardon? The blog started. Then the blogs and, and, the, and the conservative talk radio started and he changed right. his mind. Yeah, right. and it's like, you know, the, the right. media, I mean, it's just like with the Pago thing, you know, it's <laughs> his media and it's like, whoa, right. you know. Anyhow, Bob Nay, Congressman Bob Nay. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Great talking with you, as always. Uh, Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. Good afternoon. I just wanted to comment on the women's pay issue. Mm -hmm. I was um, in the Teamsters for 37 years, and from entry level all the way up to Class A tradespeople, women were paid by the job, not by the gender. So in that area, throughout well, that's, that's my the good thing about unions. Career, but on the other hand, you know, I've I've uh, been to the uh, UAW. You know, uh, James Hoffa used to be a regular on our show when I was doing a TV show in D.C. And uh, I don't recall any women in senior management. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe there are. I just never never saw any. Oh, you, Sean, there are. The second in command is a woman. Sean corrects me. Thank you, Sean. Um, but but yeah, I, you know, I remember the unions of my dad's day. They were almost entirely male organizations. Yeah, well, within our union structure, pay scale went by the job you did. If you were the plumber, you had uh, top level pay scale, right. and it didn't matter if you were a male or female. All the plumbers were making the same money. Yeah. So that was an area in my life growing up that. All the women were getting paid exactly the same as the men for the job they were doing. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And if you grew up with that, that's your normal. And so you're less likely to end up being a raging sexist pig, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot to be said for union, <laughs> Teamsters especially. Amen. And, and contracts that, that you know, lay out clearly what the compensation is, regardless of who's doing the job gender, race, whatever, maybe religion, all the other ways that we find to divide ourselves 16 ways to Sunday that are just like stupid, you know, that, that, that we're doing this to ourselves. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. And thanks for uh, listening to us there in Minnesota. Fascinating day today as the uh, Pelosi era begins with Elizabeth Warren having announced that uh, she's probably running for president and the Democrats beginning their investigations of Donald Trump uh, they're going to hit the ground running, if not this afternoon, certainly tomorrow morning. It's going to get real interesting now. For the first time, Donald Trump is going to have a force pushing back against him. That's not just the media. So, you know, check it out. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Tag your end. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.